From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. It is estimated that there were over 1 million cases of gonorrhea last year, both reported and unreported. With such a high burden of disease, there are highly effective diagnostic tests that can precisely detect presence of gonococcus. For some time, these tests have been able to determine the antibiotic susceptibility of a strain. However, with cases and resistance on the rise, Dr. Yonatan Grad and his lab at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health would like to better identify where we may see antibiotic resistance. Dr. Yonatan Grad is an assistant professor in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Grad, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You study infectious diseases and in particular gonorrhea. Why is gonorrhea an important infection to study? So uh, I'll list uh, a few different reasons, but very broadly, I think of it as an important infection to study because uh, there is a large and increasing burden of disease. Uh, So there are over 550,000 cases reported in the U.S. uh, last year alone, and uh, the true incidence is expected to be at least two times that. Uh, And globally, it is also uh, a uh, very common bacterial infection. Um, The second reason is that uh, there is uh, also an increasing burden of antibiotic resistance. So uh, as we have seen in many other pathogens as well, gonococcus is regularly uh, developed resistance to each of the antibiotics that we use to treat it from uh, the first uh, with penicillin and sulfonamides uh, through most recently ceftriaxone and azithromycin. There have been uh, treatment failures even with this uh, dual regimen that is the current recommendation from the CDC and other institutions. Uh, And with that, uh, I think the threat of resistance makes it um, particularly important. Third, it seems like there are opportunities uh, for different types of interventions. The way we approach gonorrhea clinically, first in diagnosis, is often through nucleic acid amplification tests. Uh, And those kinds of tests, while uh, uh, sensitive and uh, thereby enabling us to identify infections, um, they don't inform on antibiotic susceptibility. Mm -hmm. So if we can develop new types of diagnostics uh, that not only can be used at the point of care, but also can inform on antibiotic susceptibility um, that could uh, enable us to have a greater arsenal uh, of strategies for tackling antibiotic resistance. And in that way, um, gonococcus can also become a kind of exemplar or archetype of different strategies for trying to 
tackle the problem of antibiotic resistance that we could then think about applying to other types of bacteria. So in those ways, it really becomes a kind of model system that we can use to think about approaches to the the great challenge of antimicrobial resistance. Okay. And the nucleic acid amplification test that you mentioned, that's a test to identify gonorrhea in a in somebody, but it doesn't tell you whether it's resistant to antibiotics or not. That's right. So uh, traditionally, the method for diagnosing gonorrhea, uh, in fact, the, the first kinds of approaches involved bacterial culture, where you take a sample from an individual you suspected might have an infection. And this is, for example, someone who might come in uh, with, uh, in the medical or clinical jargon, uh, purulent urethritis, basically pus coming from the tip of the penis, from the urethra, uh, and pain uh, with urination, burning sensation. They would swab uh, the material and plate it out on uh, media that would facilitate growth of the bacteria. They could then see does gonococcus, uh, which is another name for Neisseria gonorrhea, the bacteria uh, that causes um, uh, uh, gonorrhea. They could see if it grows. Mm-hmm. That growth then becomes a basis for testing antibiotic susceptibility. Once you have the bacterium culture, you can uh, test whether it is sensitive to a panel of different antibiotics. Uh, That was the traditional approach for diagnosis, and that's the way we can characterize the resistance phenotype, or basically is what drugs the uh, bacteria are susceptible to. Um, the nucleic acid amplification test is a, a more recent introduction. It's a more it's a it's a very sensitive kind of approach and one that can be used non-invasively. So you don't have to use a swab that goes into the urethra. Uh, you could take a sample of urine, for example, and uh, look to see is there DNA from Neisseria gonorrhea. It's very sensitive, so we can see is there any evidence of uh, gonococcus present. And from that, if there is, we know that wherever it's present, we think of it as, a, as an obligate human pathogen. Wherever we find it, that's an indication that there's an infection, mm-hmm. and that becomes a basis for, for treating. But it does not tell us uh, on its own about antibiotic susceptibility. For that, at least to date, what we've required for phenotypic assessment again, the the physical manifestations, or can it actually grow or not, uh, that requires culture. Over uh, about the past seven or so years, cases have been going up. It's interesting, actually, just yesterday, the CDC numbers came out and showed a 5% increase from 2017 to 2018. Mm-hmm. But from 2016 to 2017, there was an 18% increase. Wow. And in the UK, the increase... Uh, um, to 2018 was was over 20 percent. So so it has been uh, increasing uh, um, fairly dramatically over the past few years. So after many years of decline, mm-hmm. uh, we have seen uh, a rapid increase such that the numbers are uh, about as high as they've been in 30 years. Why do you think that is? So that there are um, a few ways to think about uh, the rates of infection for various infectious diseases. Generally, we think about uh, whether there are ecological phenomena that lead to cycling of uh, rates of uh, infection. Things like population-wide immunity can contribute to uh, um, the fluctuation in rates. Uh, 
But for STIs or sexually transmitted infections, one of the things we also think about is whether there are changes in behavior that might contribute. For gonorrhea, uh, it's not clear how much immunity actually exists in a population, but it is clear, at least from a behavioral perspective, uh, that there are some clues that that might be, that that behavior, changes in behavior might be what's what's at the root here, given that um, uh, syphilis and chlamydia rates have also been increasing. Mm. So with the rise of all STIs concurrently, that points towards uh, behavioral changes as one of the uh, drivers, potentially, for the rapid rise in gonorrhea incidence. That change in behavior may also uh, be related to um, advances in the care and prevention of HIV. So as we have seen um, that uh, undetectable levels of uh, HIV. So when your HIV viral load is totally suppressed with antiretroviral therapy, uh, we know that that is that as people say, U equals U. That undetectable means untransmissible. Um, so uh, as people have been taking their their uh, antiretrovirals uh, and suppressing their HIV viral loads, that seems to be the concern for HIV acquisition is diminished. And this is also augmented by um, uh, the widespread uptake of pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. So the use of Truvada, for example, as pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, limits one's risk. And so as there has been behavior change with um, less condom use, there is uh, more opportunity for the spread of uh, uh, of sexually transmitted infections other than HIV. So uh, there's speculation that this shift mm-hmm. uh, and the advances in HIV prevention may also be uh, uh, associated with uh, a rise in, um, in, in STIs. And so with a rise in STIs and with more people getting infected with gonorrhea, does that lead to an increased chance of resistant strains of gonorrhea or the development of resistant strains sorry does the does does the higher incidence yeah more cases mean higher probability or more mutation into antibiotic resistant strains yeah not necessarily uh there is some modeling work that suggests that um with more treatment and more antibiotic pressure we'll see the emergence of more resistance uh but that it's not entirely clear that that's necessarily the case. Uh, what we have seen is more resistance, and there are all sorts of possible reasons why that's the case. So uh, one of them is that we're treating more, so we identify more cases, we use mm-hmm. more antibiotics, we're driving, we're driving uh, uh, resistance that way. Another possibility is that gonorrhea spreads globally, uh, and that much of our resistance may actually start in other places in the world where there mm-hmm. is heavy antibiotic use. And then uh, with the uh, global spread of gonorrhea as people move from place right. to place, uh, we could start to see resistant strains um, emerging uh, from other places as well. Could you tell us about some of the work your lab is doing around uh, gonorrhea and antibiotic resistance? Yes, I would be delighted to. So so we're asking a variety of questions, uh, thinking about um, how we approach the problem of antibiotic resistance from several perspectives. First, on just a population level, what's 
what's happening? Uh, what are the trends in resistance? What are the trends in antibiotic use that might be driving that resistance uh, mechanistically? And then we use uh, uh, interdisciplinary methods, including genomics, mathematical modeling, and epidemiology to try to make inferences from what happens at a population level and understand at a molecular level, for example, what is the basis for antibiotic resistance? Why is it that within the diversity of the gonococcal species, some lineages seem more able to acquire and maintain resistance than others? We then work in the wet lab to try to validate those hypotheses uh, and then think about how we take those conclusions and apply them back at the population level through the development of diagnostics, therapeutics, or public health interventions. How do we do surveillance, for example, uh, for new types of resistance? So we try to ask questions at each of these levels. Earlier on, we talked about how people are using nucleic acid amplification tests to identify gonococcal infections. One idea is that if we can not only look at DNA to find the presence of gonorrhea, but can also use the DNA to identify the presence or absence of resistance determinants, maybe we can rapidly predict from the genotype the resistance phenotype. And if we can confidently say that an individual's infection is going to be susceptible to a particular antibiotic, it would enable us to use that antibiotic rather than treating empirically uh, with uh, the last-line antibiotics that are all that remain to us. Mm. So for example, ciprofloxacin, a uh, fluoroquinolone antibiotic, used to be one of the antibiotics we would use to treat gonorrhea empirically because it was expected that ciprofloxacin would cure most, if not all, infections. But resistance to ciprofloxacin uh, increased in the population, and it increased so much that we stopped using it because more than 5% of cases, and in fact now somewhere around 30% of cases, uh, turn out to be resistant, at least in the U.S. In other places in the world, it's even much higher than mm -hmm. that. But we know that resistance to ciprofloxacin uh, is uh, achieved through a particular mutation. In this case, it's a mutation in the gene gyrase A. It's a, uh, uh, one of the, uh, the product of gyr A is targeted by ciprofloxacin. There's a mutation in position 91. Uh, and if that mutation is present, we expect the, the uh, bacteria will be resistant. But if that mutation is not present, then we expect that the bacteria will be susceptible to cipro. So if we could have a rapid diagnostic that identifies the, uh, what's going on at that position, we can take Cipro back off the shelf and now use it where before we weren't use it empirically. Mm -hmm. Now we can mm -hmm. actually use it because we would be confident that the bacteria are susceptible. So if we can develop uh, and expand beyond just that one example to think about predicting susceptibility for a variety of different antibiotics, even going back to penicillin, perhaps uh, now with greater choice uh, among different antibiotics, we can uh, not only um, slow the emergence of resistance to our last line antibiotics because we'd be using them less, mm -hmm. uh, but perhaps by having a range of choice, uh, we can slow the emergence of resistance generally. 
to do that, we need to know what the genetic basis is of resistance and how well we can predict susceptibility. Uh, so that means not only being able to identify those that are resistant, but being able to confidently identify those that are susceptible. Our lab has been working on trying to, to do that. So both to ask how well do our known resistance determinants account for resistance? And then what's the what we call the negative predictive value. So in the absence of those, how well do they actually identify susceptibility? We have, uh, um, in the process of that, used the population genomic data, so this is where we go from population levels, and use statistical inferential methods to ask, uh, first, how well can we account for what we observe, uh, the resistance that we observe through known resistance determinants, and then if they're are ones where we haven't been able to explain their resistance, can we take those to the lab or use statistical methods to generate hypotheses as to which variants, which mutations might explain uh, the resistance, test those in the lab, and through that kind of approach, we've identified new pathways to uh, antibiotic resistance. Now, with that kind of characterization, those can be incorporated into new diagnostics along the lines of what I described for ciprofloxacin. Mm -hmm. We've also been thinking about then um, how do you apply this kind of approach at a population level, given that we expect, you know, we're up against nature and natural selection. There will always be evolution of new pathways to resistance. If we're using genotypic methods, that's fundamentally a prediction approach. It's not actually testing the susceptibility. It's mm -hmm. trying to predict from the genome what the susceptibility is. We might expect to find that there are new pathways to resistance emerging, or there are ones that have simply been under the radar of our current surveillance approaches that will blossom once right. we apply more selective pressures. So we've also been looking at what would a surveillance system look like? How, how many samples would you have to test? Uh, are there ways to make this kind of approach efficient? So uh, that's one example of uh, the kind of uh, uh, work that we've been doing where we go from population level down to molecular mechanism and then think about how that applies. We've also, uh, in the course of doing that work, stumbled on something that I think is, is also incredibly interesting. As we've been trying to characterize uh, resistance um, and what explains resistance, we found that there's actually, and this is work that we have, uh, that we're just preparing to, to put into a manuscript and publish, uh, hopefully sometime soon. Um, not only could we identify variants that contribute to resistance, but we actually also uh, saw that a number, for a number of isolates, the amount of resistance that we predict by the genome is much higher than their actual resistance. In other words, they are more susceptible than we would have predicted based on looking at their genome. They have resistance determinants, but they're still susceptible. So what's going on mm. there? It turns out that there is uh, actually a, another genetic element that we've now identified that confers susceptibility. So it seems to be a suppressor of antibiotic resistance that has arisen multiple times in, uh, in the gonococcal population. Uh, and we've been characterizing why that might be. But it points to another kind of uh, idea for a therapeutic strategy, which is... Um, 
you know, to combine something that can mimic this genetic phenomenon of suppressing antibiotic re resistance with an antibiotic. So in the same way that augmentin or amoxicillin plus clavulonic acid contains uh, clavulonic acid, which basically blocks uh, the enzyme that breaks down amoxicillin and makes the bugs susceptible to amoxicillin again. Here we can think about uh, other strategies where there are perhaps a molecular mimic of this suppressor that we've identified. Combining it with an antibiotic, we can render resistant isolates susceptible again. So that's a therapeutic strategy we're now also trying to explore. Okay, so the, the suppressor exists in the same <clears throat> genome as the um, resistant gene so you Correct. can have a, a strain that has so you might look at the strain and say oh it's resistant but for some reason it's not when we attack it with antibiotics it it, it dies exactly um and so you're so and that's some that's new that your lab has discovered yes yeah so we're and and we have uh um, so, so I should say that, in, in fact, the, the observation of antibiotic hypersusceptible clinical isolates of Neisseria gonorrhea actually was first reported in a, a paper in Nature in 1978. Mm -hmm. But at the time, they had two questions. One was, what actually is the mutation here? And the second is, why does it appear in clinical isolates at all? You would think that there is just pressure for continued aggregation of resistance mm. not to become susceptible again right. so really the innovation i think that that we have in uh in in this work is to show that uh there that this uh susceptibility this suppression of resistance has appeared many times in the gonococcal genome that it is uh you know we have we can estimate just what fraction of isolates have it but the other thing that we show here is that it's it's associated, we believe, with the site of infection. So the site of infection in the body. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So so you so it gets to the question of why would these suppressors appear? It must be that there is some selective pressure that uh, drives some change in the genome, and it just so happens that that change also impacts antibiotic susceptibility. Mm. Our hypothesis was that this has to be something to do with site of infection because there aren't that many other things going on that would apply selective pressures to gonococcus. It can only live in a few different places right. in people. And the uh, antibiotics are, well, it's a few different antibiotics, so we know about that. That's right. And we also know that antibiotics um, are not a constant pressure. Right. And people right. can have asymptomatic infections. Mm. So, uh, in fact, when I mentioned before that the incidence, the true incidence of gonorrhea is expected to be uh, at least two times higher than the reported incidence, it's because of these asymptomatic infections. So, people can carry gonorrhea. Uh, in fact, most cervical and rectal and pharyngeal infections we think are asymptomatic. So people don't have symptoms when infected in those sites. Hmm. And what that means is that they're carrying gonorrhea without antibiotic pressure for the most part, unless they're getting treated for something else. Hmm. Uh, and so the bugs have to adapt to those niches. We hypothesized that something in one of those niches may apply a pressure that leads to a change and that change has a consequence on antibiotic resistance independent of the 
antibiotic pressures. So it turns out that this variant that we observed uh, that is associated with suppressing antibiotic resistance is more commonly found in cervical specimens. So we are guessing that there's something in the cervical niche, something about that environment that uh, leads to, that selects for uh, this particular change and that that change just so happens to also increase susceptibility to antibiotics. Mm. Uh, so it's, um, and that's really, I think, the, the um, interesting intersection between kind of the uh, antibiotic pressure that we apply through treatment and the selective pressures that the bacteria experience through natural infection. And you mentioned that you see this kind of work as sort of um, a template for looking at antibiotic resistance in other organisms. Could you talk about how you might look at antibiotic resistance generally based on the work you're doing with gonorrhea? Yeah, so there, there are a couple of examples here. One is on the relationship between antibiotic use and resistance. We had a paper um, earlier this year where we asked whether the use of the antibiotic azithromycin in the population might actually be driving resistance in gonorrhea and through something that uh, um, in work that we've done with, with Mark Lipsitch, in fact, that Mark has led, uh, is termed bystander selection. So here the idea is that the antibiotic uh, exposure experienced by a particular pathogen is in part the uh, is, is in part attributable to um, disease caused by that pathogen but it might be uh, predominantly actually from disease caused by other pathogens for gonococcus that can be carried asymptomatically you can imagine that if you have you know, gonorrhea, one of these mucosal sites, but you don't have symptoms, you're not taking antibiotics to treat it. But let's say you have a strep throat mm -hmm. at the same time, you'll get antibiotics for your strep throat. And those antibiotics will then also apply a selective pressure, not only to cure right. your infection, but also the throat infection, but also will cause uh, um, an antibiotic pressure on gonococcus. Right. So this uh, is what we term the bystander effect. Mm -hmm. We looked at uh, for azithromycin, one of the antibiotics used to treat gonorrhea, but also one of the most commonly prescribed antibiotics in the population. What happens over the course of a year? We know that um, uh, there is seasonality to antibiotic use, particularly for azithromycin, where it peaks in the winter and nadirs in the summer. Uh, and winter use is two to three times that of summer use. So we have these nice sinusoidal waves mm. looking mm -hmm. over years uh, of azithromycin use. If antibiotic use drives antibiotic resistance, then we'd expect uh, that resistance is the derivative of use. So uh, derivative of sine is cosine, and looking at the sinusoidal waves that peak in January, uh, cosine is 90 degrees off, or in this case for a 12-month period, it would be three months away. So we would expect that mm -hmm. resistance would peak three months after uh, um, the peak in use. And in fact, uh, when we look at the uh, using data uh, from our collaborators at the CDC, when we look at uh, the um, cycling of resistance over the course of a year, we see not only does it cycle, but it does 
peak or around March, April uh, in keeping with the expectation. Mm. So something about population-wide antibiotic use uh, seems to be uh, driving resistance in gonococcus as well, indicating the presence of bystander selection. Others have looked at data sets from Europe and uh, have also identified uh, population-level um, relationships between use and resistance. So uh, this is one example of how work we're doing with gonococcus might be applicable to other pathogens. Uh, and then we're thinking about uh, gonococcus again as, as an exemplar for some of these methods for identifying new resistance determinants that we could feed into diagnostics uh, and as uh, um, also how, how we can best do surveillance uh, for the emergence of new resistance determinants. So those are just a few of the mm -hmm. examples of how we're hoping some of the methods that we're developing and uh, demonstrating with, with gonococcus might also be applied to other pathogens. Well, Dr. Grodd, thank you very much for coming in. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. It's been really fun. Next time on Think Research. We are now using next generation sequencing to say which treatment we should use on a patient that it sort of matches the mutation to the treatment modality of the tumor. What we'd love to get to though is, you know, you're able to look at the sample, predict who's going to get disease, and then do something so they never get it. Dr. Georg Gerber discusses his approach to studying C. difficile, combining genomic sequencing, machine learning, and precision medicine. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.